want to add my welcome to you all and a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and all that. Um, I have one announcement for Logan. Logan, you will be out the elder out there greeting people this morning. Uh, and I'm going to be uh, available here um, with some folks uh, on either side of the platform. It's our custom on the last Sunday of the month to pray for people who, um, particularly if you would like to be pr- uh, prayed for for healing, we want to make sure that we do that. And so there will be some of us stationed here. And speaking of healing, please pray for Ryan Chase, who was supposed to be preaching this morning. Um, Ryan's home with his family. He's been sick all week long. So we lift the Chase family up to the Lord. And I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. For the, for the past four weeks, we've been tracing this prophetic pathway, beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and and then culminating with the birth of the Lord Jesus, the gospel promise of a child who would be born as a son and a savior is, it, it was proclaimed to Adam and Eve and then to Abraham and later to King David and after that to the people of God living in war torn Galilee, that the promise made first to Adam and Eve of an offspring who would save his fallen race would not be fulfilled until the birth of Christ. Today I want to draw your attention uh, to the Gospel of Matthew and the fulfillment of all that has been kind of fuzzy and foggy and uh, kind of just emerging because now it comes into clarity. And my prayer is that... uh, we might behold the wisdom of God in giving to us the Son and Savior who is Lord and Christ, and it would be marvelous in our eyes. So if you are able, uh, please stand. We do this in honor of God's word, expressing our regard and full attention. And I am going to read, you're going to be standing a little bit here, but um, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1, all the way through uh, verse 23. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him... Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill the word, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping. And loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's life-giving word. Let's pray together. Lord, we're trusting your promise today that faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes through the word of Christ, the word about Christ, recorded in scripture. So would you, if nothing else, cause our faith, our trust in you, our confidence in you, our assurance in all that you are for us to be strengthened to be made alive and vibrant. And may this faith 
be living and productive, bearing the fruit of obedience and worship and wholehearted following after you, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. In the early chapters of his biography of Jesus, Matthew lays out, he lays out his proofs that Jesus is, in fact, the promised son given by God to crush the serpent, to be a savior for all the nations who would build a living house for the praise of God's name and who would establish an eternal kingdom. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, Matthew recounts the genealogical storyline that points to Jesus being the Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, Matthew draws attention to the particular circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth that confirm that he is the Christ. And then in chapter 2, Matthew focuses on the circumstances surrounding Jesus' early childhood that offer yet further confirmation that he truly is God's son given unto us. Now, in the 23 verses that I just read, Matthew shows that Jesus is, first of all, the, the central character in the fulfillment of God's unfolding plan. That's what we've been looking at over these last few weeks, this unfolding plan. But here, here's the fulfillment. Here's the exclamation point. Matthew chapter 2 is made up of four snapshots of the activity surrounding Jesus' early childhood. And in Matthew, and Matthew highlights these particular incidents, these, these specific ones, because he means for us to understand that they each satisfy the fulfillment of various Old Testament prophecies, prophecies that foreshadow the anticipated and promised Messiah. So in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, these wise men or astrologers from the east arrive in Jerusalem asking, where is he? Where is this new king of the Jews? We've seen this rising star indicating his birth and We've come to pay homage. Tell us where we can find him. And according to the chief priests and the scribes, you know, the Bible guys, uh, the Christ would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. So look at verse, verses four and, or 5 and 6 again. For so it is written, And you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then in verses 13 through 15, this is scene 2. It involves God sending a guardian angel. We could presumably conclude his name was not Clarence. He sends his guardian angel to move Joseph and Mary and the child Jesus out of harm's way and, and into safety in Egypt. And, and Matthew understood this not, not only as God's providential means of protecting Jesus, but as divine positioning. Look at verse 15 again. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And then verses 16 through 18. This would be scene three. 
the account of this. It's really, it's really a troubling text. The insane, brutal, bloody infanticide committed by Herod with, with the intent of annihilating any potential threat to his position, his power, his privilege. And, and, and though this is a heart-rending, un, just unspeakably heart-rending tragedy, Matthew is quite clear that it did not catch God off guard, rather than an expression of some inexplicable passivity on God's part, or some terrifying impotence on God's part, because that's, that's really what it would be, right? If, if God couldn't do anything about this, that would, that would be frightening beyond words. It is rather a faith-strengthening providence to once again fulfill a divine purpose foretold and anticipated centuries earlier through the prophetic word of Jeremiah. So we need to frame that rightly. Many of you are now familiar with the narrative poem, The Innkeeper, written by a friend of ours that captures the wonder of this providential mystery. Here's the key section. Just listen to this. Jesus says to this innkeeper, I am that boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life, and then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live and another die. God's ways are high, and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared that night. You made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks they will crucify my flesh, but mark this, Jacob, I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death. And I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too and give them back to you with everything the world can store, and you will reign forevermore. And so, even the excruciating wrong of slaughtering boy children is a part of God's unfolding plan. And then finally, in verses 19 to 23, this would be the, the fourth scene after the threat of Herod had passed and the guardian angel took Joseph by the hand, as it were, and led the family back home to Israel. Rather, rather than Bethlehem, the Lord brought them instead to an obscure and somewhat <laughs> notorious community called Nazareth. And though Nazareth, as a specific geographic location, is never mentioned in the Old Testament, Matthew is, is playing on the sound of the Hebrew word Nestor. Nazareth, Nestor. Nestor means branch, for it was the prophet Isaiah who refers to the Messiah as a shoot or a branch that will come forth from the stump of Jesse. Look at Isaiah 11, verse 2. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So Matthew's telling us that Jesus was a descendant from what remained of the family of Jesse, King David's father. And this Jesus, this Nazarene, is the Nestor one, whom the prophets foretold, a suffering servant, a spirit-anointed man, a righteous branch. So the, the, the whole point is that God, through Matthew, intends for the readers of this gospel to understand that in every twist, every turn of this danger filled early childhood journey of Jesus, there are no mistakes. There are no accidents. There are no terrors, no transitions or trials that are outside the providential fulfillment of and the eternal plan of God revealed in the Word of God. Jesus is the Son whom God has given. So, loved ones, to borrow a word from Matthew, if, you, if you're noticing this, behold, he says it about five times, behold, listen carefully, stop and think about this. It means that God is with us. God is with us in a world where kingdoms are ruled by nefarious and narcissistic rulers. God is with us in our unanticipated, unplanned-for transitions. God is with us in pandemics. God is with us when we have to leave everything behind. God is with us when we go back home with all of its good and bad. God is with us when we are strangely positioned in an out-of-the-way, hard place. And further, God is not just with us. Oh no. God is not just with us. God is fulfilling the storyline of his unfolding plan for us and for the display of his glory. Secondly, Matthew means for us to recognize Jesus appearing as a as a display of God's uncommon glory. Uncommon. See, God's common glory, or his expected glory, or his garden variety glory, is displayed in these awesome acts of power and stunning greatness. You know, he shows his majestic omnipotence in his mind-blowing omniscience in his massive omnipresence. That's what we expect of God. That's common glory. But God's uncommon glory or unusual or in this case unexpected glory is displayed in Jesus' equally stunning humility. One of the ways that Matthew calls our attention to this is through the use of contrast and irony. When we read this text, Matthew means for us, he means for us to feel incongruence. Feel the incongruence of a star from heaven announcing Christ as a cosmic king, but for whom a manger serves as his resting place. 
Christ is a king over nations and peoples, and yet he's attended to quietly in a backwater village. We're meant to feel the incongruence of his majesty shining in the east. You know, most likely Persia or Iran, and, and drawing the attention and the interest of so-called wise men and mystics, individuals who, who possess absolutely no biblical background, no awareness of prophetic expectations, no spiritual perception. And these pagans were the, they were the very least likely to interpret the signs that pointed to the Christ. They're the very least likely to respond to a spiritual king. And yet they're the very ones who travel a great distance at enormous personal cost, bearing phenomenal gifts, gifts most rare. And they do so, they do so while those who do possess the biblical knowledge, do possess the understanding of the prophetic expectations, the very ones that you would have expected to be looking for and longing and anticipating and ready. They show no apparent sign of, of interest at all. No heart to express homage. They, 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 don't, even, they don't even feel the least ounce of Curiosity to check it out. <laughs> Matthew means for us to feel the weird tension in all of that. And further, no sooner is Jesus born and the king, the king of the land, slaughters all the children in the region so as not to threaten his positional authority. I mean, Jesus is barely born and he is turned into a refugee, a refugee in a foreign country. He is moved to a place where during his most formative years, he no doubt felt the emotional challenges, wounds of being an outsider put off and marginalized as he tried to make friends with other kids his age. The one with the accent, the one who didn't speak the language, the one who looked different. And then when it was finally safe to come home to Palestine, his family takes up residence in this Galilean backwater. The dark place where everyone is grieving something. A village so dark that by simply living there, one inherited a disparaging reputation. Oh, you're from Nazareth. <laughs> Ooh. And, and, and that's where he lived for the majority of the first 30 years. Five-sixths of his life. Overlooked. Taken no notice of. And from there, his experience of honor only diminishes. It is an uncommon glory. It is a supernatural glory that in beholding his lowly poverty and being presented with 
every reason really to be prejudiced against him, still these wise men fall down and worship him. And then thirdly, the circumstances surrounding Jesus' earliest days are are really a proof, aren't they, of God's unthwartable purpose. From nearly day one, every attempt is made to take Jesus' life, to make an end of him. And it is real. This is a a real danger. It is an intense thing. It is a demonic thing. This child whom to us God gave to crush the serpent, to make disciples of all nations, to build a house of living stones, and to establish an eternal kingdom, all so that Satan might not deceive the nations any longer, is from day one under constant assault. According to Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour. That's a a symbolic image of what's going on at the time Jesus was born. But God protected Jesus because God's saving purpose cannot be thwarted. Jesus will build his church. And neither the gates of hell nor even Satan himself can overturn the saving work of God. Yes, Jesus was born to suffer. He was born to die, but not as a victim. Not as the dragon's lunch. Not as a helpless martyr. But rather on his own terms. At the right time as a pure and spotless and perfectly obedient sacrifice for the sins of all who would turn and entrust themselves to him. The birthday of Jesus is worthy to be celebrated since it signifies such a poignant display of God's unfolding plan, God's uncommon glory, and God's unthwartable purpose. I want to just mention a couple of practical matters that we, I think, should take seriously in application of this text before the calendar turns this week to 2022. And of course, none of these are are going to be some radical new revelation or some exotic new recommendation. (laughs) They're just just simply reminders of, of steady state discipleship. But really what we need as we recalibrate walking into a new year. As a new year dawns, seek Christ and his life in the scriptures. You see, you see the, the, the magi, these wise men, asked the most important question. Where is he? Where do we find him? Looking up, at the night sky and gazing on the stars, these, these wise men are led to Jerusalem. But, but it was the scriptures that led them to Christ. It was the Bible that pointed them to Bethlehem, 
It was special revelation that brought them into the very presence of Jesus. And so, this is the week, friends. Don't wait till next week. This is the week to find a plan, choose the plan, and get yourselves ready again to read the Bible in 2022. Read it slow, read it through, read it with others, meditate on it, pray it, memorize it. That is where we find and experience the Christ. What's shocking in Matthew chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, is that the very ones who knew the Bible, whose heads were so full of the Bible, possessed less grace, less experience of the active presence and power of God than the pagan astrologers. Fortune tellers were more in tune with what God was up to than the theological fundamentalists. Sound orthodoxy does not necessarily equal vital spirituality. Herod, the people of Jerusalem, the chief priests and scribes, they were all troubled when they heard from these unlearned, unholy, unspiritual magi that the Christ had been born. Troubled. They were disturbed. They were, you know, they were ashamed. They were just ashamed. They were guilty. They felt bad. But not for long. And not enough to change. Theirs was simply unsettled passivity. And unsettled passivity did not get them to the life and the grace of Christ. And it is on account of unsettled passivity that the world in which we live today is being rocked. May the Spirit of God stir our hearts as he did the Magi. Or the woman who met Jesus at the well that I read about this morning when she said, Lord, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty. You know, at the very least, Matthew 2 is a call to, to read the word. It's, it's at the very least, it's a call to honest and heartfelt repentance and faith. To make space for communion with Christ in and through God's word. Second, renew your commitment to gospel community. I mean, that's, that's how we roll in Emmaus Road Church. That's, this is our bread and butter, right? It's what we're kind of known for. But there are always reasons and there are always seasons and there are always temptations to neglect meaningful spiritual community, even in a church like ours. Jesus' old adversary and ours brings a relentless onslaught against our faith. And 2022 will be no different, I promise you. Remaining sin within us, conspiring with a sin-saturated world around us, will contribute to your spiritual journey being fraught with many dangers and toils and threats and temptations and snares. And this year, as in every year, some will succumb to unbelief and hardness of heart. 
Some will be overtaken by sin. Some, like Joseph and family, will be challenged by transitions and long, hard, and humbling tasks in places they would not have chosen on their own terms. And God's word to us in Matthew chapter 2 and in each Advent text that we have given our attention to, hold out the promise of God's faithfulness and God's protection and sustaining grace. God has a plan that will not fail and a purpose that will not be thwarted. But his provision and his means for keeping us and holding us and helping us make it, make it another year, keeping us loving Christ another year, keep us growing in Christ another year, staying faithful another year, staying married another year, staying a Christian for another year, in its safe, honest, frequent, regular, gospel-centered community. Gospel-centered community that lastly goes and grows deeper into the glories of Christ. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. In Christ, God laid aside his infinitely divine majesty and prerogatives, and he traversed this infinite distance between equality with God in heaven and stooping to be clothed with flesh and blood as a man. And he endured, loved ones, listen, he endured infinite humility as a poor man, as a marginalized man. He lived as one who had no home, no place to lay his head, He bore bullying, verbal abuse. He was called a drunk. He was called a retard. He was accused of having a demon. He was betrayed and abandoned by his closest associates and then falsely convicted and executed as a common criminal. Loved ones, Only by sensing and feeling the truth of the uncommon glories of Christ's humility do we begin to recognize how his willing, loving, compassion-filled, God-centered sacrifice is more than sufficient, more than sufficient to atone for, to pay for the penalty for all the sins that have ever been committed past present, and future of all, anyone who will turn and entrust themselves to him. And this Christ is more than efficient to break and restrain the power of remaining sin in each and every one who will call on his name. Jesus is an amazing, inconceivable, unbelievable Christ. And he is worthy to be trusted and loved and are worshipped with gifts most rare. He is the Son who to us has been given. Let's pray.
Lord, it is the, the word about and of this Christ that begets faith, that brings it into being. It's the word about this Christ and of this Christ by which faith is strengthened, deepened, enlarged. And so we're trusting you, Lord, to keep that promise again in these very moments that you would powerfully and decisively awaken sleepy souls that you would powerfully and decisively bring life to dead and unresponsive souls. That you would powerfully and decisively bring deliverance to souls that are enslaved to disobedience and unbelief. We pray that you would awaken that you would draw, that you would bring about this beholding that Matthew speaks of again and again and again, that we would see, that we would discover, that we would comprehend, we would be apprehended, captured, and Lord, that you would, you would bring about the fitting response, that you would just do it all so that you alone get all the glory. Jesus, you are the hope of all the ages. From Genesis chapter 3 until today, you're the hope. You're the Son who is given. Be exalted. We pray in your name. Amen.